Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Sparkle City Sessions brought to you by the Hub City Music Society. We're here at the New Way Lounge. I'm your host, Mark Rocco Dawson. Sit back and relax and give a listen. Once again, this is Dr. John Williams reading from The Queen of the Cold-Blooded Tales by Roberta Simpson Brown. This tale is entitled Betty's Light, and it's just the perfect tale for Halloween night. Daniel and his friends Carl and Eddie sat by their campfire, glancing nervously over their shoulders. From time to time, they saw the dark woods beside the field where they had pitched their tent, lit up in the moonlight. Suddenly, as a light came on in the old lady Betty Moppin's old house in the adjoining field, the boys began to shiver. Daniel's father told him, Stay on my land. Do not do anything to bother that old lady. The three boys agreed to do as they were told. At first, they sat quietly after Daniel's father left and watched the flames devour the twigs and small branches. In the distance, Betty's tiny light flickered in her window. Other than the firelight and Betty's light, there was nothing but total darkness. When the boys had first planned to sleep out, they were going to tell ghost tales. Now, with the warm green woods shrouded in darkness, none of the three boys felt brave enough for any scary story. Instead, they began to talk about Betty Moppins, not realizing that her story was more frightening than any ghost tale they could ever tell. Do you think she really buries her money in fruit jars around the farm? asked Eddie. Oh, yeah, said Daniel. My mother says she doesn't trust anyone since somebody robbed her several years ago. I guess she's afraid somebody will steal her money if she doesn't hide it. I can't imagine her being afraid of anything, said Carl. My father says she's not even afraid of the devil himself. I wouldn't be either if I had that gun of hers. It's a big 12-gauge shotgun. It would kill anything that she set her sights on. I feel kind of sorry for her, said Daniel. She doesn't have any family or friends, not even visitors. I wouldn't want to live that way. Me neither, said Eddie. I might for enough money, said Carl. How much money do you think she's got? Must be a fortune. It surely isn't very much, said Eddie. Look at that big old house she lives in. Oh, that doesn't mean anything. Hey, Carl said, let's have a treasure hunt, he suggested. Great, said Daniel and Eddie. The idea was much more appealing than conjuring up ghosts or discussing strange old women. A real treasure hunt, Daniel repeated. It's too risky, said Daniel. Yes, yeah, said Eddie. 
if he catch, if she catches us, you know we're not supposed to bother her. What'll happen? She'll never know we've been there, explained Carl. We'll wait for the light to go out, and then we'll give her time to go to sleep, and then we'll go over on her property and dig. Daniel and Eddie couldn't think of any more objections, so they both looked at Carl and agreed. After what seemed like hours, Betty's light went out. The boys forced themselves to wait several more minutes to be sure she was sound asleep, and then picking up rocks from the bank, they crossed the stream and looked around for a place to dig. The boys dropped to their knees and began to scoop away at the top layer of dirt with their sharp rocks. The soil was loose, so they worked quickly. They hadn't dug very deep when their rocks scraped against something. They dug faster and uncovered a jar, a jar full of money. They couldn't believe their luck. They stood up and danced around, passing the jar back and forth in an effort to see how much was in it. The moonlight wasn't bright enough to tell but the jar was full. They were so excited they forgot to keep their voices low. The sound carried across the field and woke Betty. They didn't hear her coming until she was right on them. Whirling around, they faced the old lady and fell silent. The barrel of a gun pointed straight at them and left them dry and speechless. Give me my money, you trespassing little thieves screeched Betty. I ought to shake the lot of you. The boys stood rooted to the ground. Daniel was clutching the jar with both hands, so Betty turned the gun toward him. Give me my money, she demanded again. Thinking she was going to shoot, Eddie panicked. With a lunge, he hit the gun, knocking the barrel upward. The sudden motion caught Betty off balance. She staggered and fell, the shotgun exploded and blew a big hole in her head. Blood streamed out everywhere. She struck her head against a rock and lay motionless in the pool of blood. The boys rushed to her. They patted her face, splashed her with water. But there was no response. Her head was almost blown off. Oh no, Eddie wailed. She's dead. What do we do? They'd never meant to hurt her. They knew what serious trouble they were in. It would have been bad enough just to be caught bothering her, but now they'd killed her. And something terrible would happen to them. Finally, Daniel spoke. Let's carry her body to her house. We'll tell our folks that she fell and the shotgun went off and there was nothing we could do. Carl watched them as they carried her until they were halfway across the field. Then, as he agreed, he dumped the money in the jar and was about to bury it again when he had a second thought. Slowly, he opened the jar and pulled the, poured the money into his knapsack. He covered the empty jar and put rocks over the smooth earth. Then he went for help as he agreed. According to local custom, the body was prepared for burial at home. The women dressed the corpse while the men made the coffin in Daniel's father's barn. 
A few words were said, and the people filed by to view Betty for the last time. The boys stared in guilt and fascination at the ugly form lying in the coffin. Suddenly, Eddie grabbed Carl's arm. Did you see that, he said in a frantic whisper? She moved. I swear it. She pointed her finger right at us. Don't be stupid, Carl hissed. Dead people don't point. Just shut up. Daniel's father overheard them, and he said, You witnessed a terrible thing today, but sometimes dead people do move as they stiffen. Try to put it out of your minds. They tried, but they couldn't stop thinking about all that had happened. What if Eddie had been right about seeing her move? Was it possible that she could still be alive? Or, even worse, the living dead? About two weeks after Betty's funeral, school began. Daniel had seen Eddie several times during those two weeks, but Carl had kept his distance. They noticed that Carl had more money to spend than usual. One day, Eddie came running to tell Daniel that he'd seen Carl with a brand new shotgun. He'd never been able to afford one before. Daniel didn't want to believe what he was thinking. He kept the money, said Eddie, voicing Daniel's thoughts. I'm scared. I know something will happen. The next day, something did. Stories began to circulate that Betty's ghost had been seen carrying her light, going from the graveyard to the farm to check all the places where she buried the money. The stories kept most of the people home at night, but still some came outside out of curiosity and insisted they saw her light moving along the road. Daniel and Eddie began spending as much time together as possible. Each time Betty was sighted, the light was closer to them. One night they were upstairs at Daniel's house, watching their old campsite from the window. That's when they saw it. The light came along the stream and stopped at the very spot where they had found the jar filled with money. Then it turned and floated toward Daniel's house. Eddie and Daniel closed the curtain and jumped under the bed covers. Neither was brave enough to look out again. The next day at school they were surprised when Carl came up to them before class. I thought you guys might want to come over to my place tonight, he said. He was pale, looked as if he hadn't slept. You saw her light last night too, didn't you? asked Daniel. Saw who? Carl answered. You took the money, said Eddie. That's why you've been avoiding us. You've got to give it back. That's what she's looking for. She won't stay in her grave until she gets it. Carl didn't deny it. He was trembling now. You've got to help me, he said. I don't know what to do. The light came right up to my window. I was never so scared in my life. I think Eddie's right, said Daniel. You've got to put the money back where we found it. I can't, said Carl. I've spent most of it. Then put back what you've got, said Eddie. Will you go with me? Carl asked. We could go after school today. After school, they stopped at Carl's house to get the money and a shovel to dig up the empty jar. 
The fastest way to the spot where it was buried was to cut across Betty's field. They hurried so they could finish before dark. None of them knew about the old abandoned well in the field that had been boarded over. They stepped on the boards unaware. Their weight cracked the rotten timber and the boys plunged to the bottom. Except for the shock of the fall, they were not hurt. The well was almost dry. The water came to their knees. They were in serious trouble. Nonetheless, the well was too deep for them to climb out. They would need help. At first they shouted, but then they realized nobody would be within hearing distance. When we don't come home tonight, they'll come looking for us, said Daniel. Then we can make them hear us. Time passed slowly. None of the boys felt like talking. Finally, it was dark, and the boys figured someone would be searching for them. They took turns calling for help, and as the night dragged on, they began, became frightened and discouraged. When they were about to give up, they heard someone coming, and they became so relieved. Tears of relief ran down their cheeks. They looked up and saw a light at the opening. Someone was bending over the edge, looking down at them. They could see the light. They could see in the light that it was the face of a woman, a face they knew only too well. No! They screamed over and over. No! No! As chunks of rotting flesh fell from Betty's face and splashed in the water and dirt began to fall, from the side of the well and cover the boys. In the light, they could see that the hands that dug the dirt were made of nothing but bones. By morning, the old well was entirely filled with dirt. The voices were silent as the light flickered out in Betty Moffin's field. The end. The Gullah people who live around Beaufort, South Carolina, are descendants of slaves, and often they believe in witch doctors. This story comes from St. Helena Island near Beaufort, South Carolina. It's from the book Tales of the South Carolina Low Country by Nancy Ryan. The jailhouse in Old Beaufort was dark and sour and not the cleanest place in the world. A jailer and three policemen were getting ready to lock Dr. Buzzard, the witch doctor, in a coffin. He was a nationally famous witch doctor and he had asked them to lock him up in a coffin so that he could prove his power in witchcraft and voodoo. He claimed that if the officers used every chain and lock at their disposal in an effort to hold him in the coffin, his escape would be testimony to the power of his black magic. The officers feared and respected Dr. Buzzard. They vowed they would lock him in the coffin so securely it would be impossible for him to escape. Dr. Buzzard climbed in the coffin in the jailhouse and settled himself down 
The jailer asked him if he was ready for the top to be closed. It's 11 o'clock. Then I'll eat dinner with Mama and the boy at the usual time. One o'clock, Dr. Buzzard said. Put the lid on. Are you sure you want to go through with this, Dr. Buzzard? The sheriff asked. The jailer slammed the top down. The last thing in the world anyone in Buford would want would be a hex inflicted on the sheriff by Dr. Buzzard, and he had promised if he did not lock him in the coffin, he would put a hex on him. They wrapped the chains around the coffin and pulled the ends together as tight as they could. At the center of the coffin on the top, they hooked the ends with a lock and snapped the lock shut. To the left and right of the middle chain, other chains were pulled together and fastened with more locks. The jailer dropped the keys to his locks in his breast pocket, patted his pocket, and then the other men laughed. They left the jailhouse and went down the street to eat lunch in a tavern on the banks of Port Royal Sound. As the jailer and the policeman dined on crab cakes and coffee, they talked about Dr. Buzzard and how he had acquired the gift or the mantle, as he calls it, of dealing with supernatural from the father, the original Dr. Buzzard. The first Dr. Buzzard came to Buford on a slave ship. Almost as soon as he was given a cabin in which to live, his master learned of his magical powers. That Dr. Buzzard had so much influence over the other slaves that his master gave him a large measure of freedom to be used in the practice of witchcraft. When the slaves were allowed to pursue their ancestral customs and beliefs, they performed their tasks more cheerfully. The people born in slavery and their descendants relied on those who worked in root for their medicinal needs. Roots were mixed with cemetery dirt, frogs' feet, hearts of owls, and crushed bones and used as charms. As slaves slipped across property lines and came to the original Dr. Buzzard for treatment, his son, the man in the coffin, learned many of his father's secrets. When his father became too old and sickly to practice, the son took over the work. He wore purple eyeglasses, a custom which prevented others from seeing his eyes and he seemed to be always chewing on a root. Usually the root was High John the Conjurer, his favorite. It had magical power, according to Dr. Buzzard, and he said if he went into a courtroom during the time a case was being tried, he could chew the root and affect the outcome of the case. He also used another procedure in affecting the result of trials. He concocted a powder by grinding together certain materials, and he sprinkled the powder on desks, tables, and chairs in the courtroom. After it had been scattered about the courtroom, Dr. Buzzard always said, this room has been rooted, and the course of the trial and progress would change, always in Dr. Buzzard's favor. Dr. Buzzard's routine also called for the use of black cats, 
He said there was no stronger force in the world than that of a bone from a black cat that had been boiled alive. The technique called for Dr. Buzzard to put a black cat in a kettle of boiling water. And when the hot water covered the cat, the cat would talk just like a man. After the cat had been boiled, it was dropped into a sack and the water was poured into a container for future use in the treatment of certain maladies. And the cat bones were taken to a creek. The cooked cat was then dumped into the creek. If the process of boiling the cat and dumping the remains into the creek was done correctly, according to the unexplained techniques of voodoo, all the bones would float away from the bank or sink except one bone. That bone just floats right up to me, Dr. Buzzard said. That was the bone with the power. Anyone carrying that bone was safe from the law and everything else. Dr. Buzzard also worked with snakes. He captured rattlesnakes from the woods and fields and gave them names. His favorite snake was Sam. When Dr. Buzzard used Sam in a cure, he would say, Come here, Sam, and have the patient lie still while the serpent slid over him. After experiencing that, the person would be cured. According to Root Man, a son of Dr. Buzzer, and also a witch doctor who practices the magical and mystical art of witchcraft and voodooism in the manner of his father, some members of the police force had shot at Dr. Buzzard on several occasions. It wasn't uncommon for fugitives to make their way to Dr. Buzzard's house in order to have a hex put on them, or someone else, or to have a hex removed, or one of Dr. Buzzard's remedies. During these times, law enforcement officers often showed up and confronted not only the fugitives, but Dr. Buzzard as well. On several occasions, a shootout had resulted from the fracas. But my daddy just caught them bullets and threw them right back to the policeman, Rootman said. When the officers and the jailer had concluded their lunch, they walked slowly back to the jailhouse. What if Dr. Buzzard can't get out of the coffin? A policeman asked. He might be getting pretty blue in the face bout now. Jailer transferred his toothpick from one side of his mouth to the other as he said, Seems to me there's plenty who wouldn't mind if he never got out of that box. Anyway, I for one don't want to be under his evil influence. You heard him say if I didn't close the coffin he put a hex on me. Let's hurry, one of the officers behind him said. We shouldn't have left the old man so long. They rushed into the room. Their hearts were beating feverishly. Then they stopped. No ordinary phenomenon could have excited such sensations as they felt. The chains that had been pulled around the coffin and locked together were now scattered all around the floor. The jailer ran to the coffin and lifted the top. He looked in. Suddenly, a black cat jumped out and scratched his face.
Here's another story from the same book entitled Lighthouses. I heard the voices down by the beach today. They're getting louder and closer. I hope I'm wrong, but I think I know who they are. The old lighthouse keeper told me the evil things would be coming. I just didn't think it would be so soon. He told me they would try to contact me. I wanted to be prepared for them, but I'm not. I think they know that the old lighthouse won't be saved, and they're moving in already. If they do, the beaches won't be safe for anyone. I'd be on my way out of here right now, but I'm waiting for my friend Lewis. He thinks we should give it one more try. He hasn't seen them up close the way I have. I know that we can't fight them. There's too many of them, and they're too strong. Our only hope is the lighthouse. Lewis is going to speak to the Historical Beach Society tonight and try to persuade them to find a way to keep the old lighthouse going, but I don't think they'll take him seriously. I think some people think Lewis and I are crazy. I've heard them talking about us. Some think we're sticking our nose out where we don't have no business. They say we're outsiders. Others agree with us that the lighthouses should be saved, but they have no idea of how to raise the money. If they knew everything Lewis and I know, they'd find a way. Of course, we can't tell them everything. It would start a panic or get us locked away. Lewis and I didn't go searching for information. We only came to the beach for a pleasant vacation. One afternoon, we happened to end up near the old lighthouse with a picnic supper. The old towering structure looked so magnificent in the twilight that Lewis and I strolled over for a closer look. The light was fading fast, and the lighthouse loomed like a ghost alone by the sea. We stood gazing up at first, commenting on how powerful and strong it seemed in spite of its age. There's something eternal about it, I said to Lewis. Too bad everybody doesn't think so, he said. I hear they're going to tear it down. That news made me sad. From the outside, its condition didn't seem to warrant its destruction. Then Lewis said he'd like to see what it was like inside. We knew there was a keeper, but we'd never met the old man. He didn't seem to be around. Lewis opened the door and called out, Hello! At that point, the only sound was the boards creaking under our feet as we ventured a little further inside. Hello! Lewis called again. Is anybody here? This time we heard something move near the window. That's when we found the old lighthouse keeper, where he had fallen. Lewis ran and knelt beside him. What happened, he said. The old man rolled his head from side to side. Take it easy, said Lewis. You'll be all right. We'll get you some help. Dark, he said. Guard. Can you tell me where you hurt, asked Lewis. Dark. Guard, he repeated. He's delirious, I said. Maybe, said Lewis, but I think he's trying to tell us something important. We'd better get somebody. Right, Lewis said. Stay with him while I call for help. I found a small pillow on a chair and put it under his head. Can you tell me your name, I asked him. Keepers, he mumbled. All lighthouses are keepers. He closed his eyes, rested, and then opened them again. Each time he would try to speak, but he couldn't make me understand. I began to think he might die, and I was frightened at the thought of it, that we would be alone. 
I was relieved when Lewis came back. An ambulance is on his way, it said. How are you feeling? I asked the old fellow. His eyes opened. He looked at Lewis and me. He was lucid and spoke in complete sentences. They mustn't destroy the lighthouses, he said. They guard the entrances. People don't understand. What don't they understand, Lewis asked. The old man's eyes got brighter. His voice was strong with feeling when he answered. People think lighthouses are no longer useful. They have fancy equipment to single ships now. But lighthouses do more than signal the ships out there in the night. What do you mean, I asked. Lighthouses have another purpose, he said. All of us who have kept them know that. They hold back the dark things. The dark, I repeated. Yes, he continued. They not only hold back the dark, they hold back what's in the dark. They guard the entrances to the world from the sea. What comes from the sea, I asked. But he didn't answer. His eyes had clouded again. Lewis and I looked at each other. We were glad that the siren in the distance was getting closer and closer. The old man did not rouse up again until they were lifting him on the stretcher. Then he opened his eyes again and looked at Lewis and me. They'll be coming soon, he said to me, and they'll try to contact you. I nodded, but I didn't understand then. Then he said to Lewis, Promise me you'll keep the light going. Lewis promised. When they had gone with the old man, Lewis looked at me. Do you want to climb to the top with me, he asked. I want to see what's up there. High places were not for me. No, thank you, I said. I'll wait outside on the beach. I didn't realize how dark it had gotten. The water flung itself against the sand, retreated, and came again. I knew Lewis had not had time to reach the top yet, but it seemed as if he'd been gone for hours. I'd never been afraid of the dark before, but now I wished that I had gone with Lewis. I felt unseen things creeping along beside me on the sand, and I shivered. I walked to the water's edge and stuck my toe in the water. There's nothing to be afraid of, I said. To prove it, I waded in with both feet. That's when the lighthouse went dark, without warning. It was at the exact time I learned later that the old keeper died. I stood in the water, looking at the sea in the moonlight, and that's when they attached themselves to me. I saw them, and I began to scream for Lewis to help me. I whirled and looked at the lighthouse. Lewis was looking out the small window near the top. I thought he'd run down to me, but I saw him start running back up. I fought and struggled, but the things wouldn't let go. I felt myself being pulled down on the wet sand. The grains rubbed against my face, and then the light was on again, shining in my eyes. The things released me, and I lay exhausted and trembling, panting for breath. I rolled away from the water and saw the red blotches on my feet and legs. Lewis came running to me from the lighthouse, and I realized then that he had saved me with the light. Tonight, I will wait until Lewis speaks at the meeting. Then we will head inland as far as we can go. If they vote to destroy the lighthouse, one entrance will be left unguarded. The voices that I heard at the beach will be louder. Out of the sea will come those restless dead, those old clean-washed bones that will cling to the living like they clung to me that night. 
the more recently dead, all ghastly and bloated, will march from their watery grave without the guard to hold them back. If the beach is dark tonight, I want to be far away from the lighthouse.